Our lesson of the day today is going to come from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. This is God's Word. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's good and true and right. I pray now that the power of your spirit would come and help me preach your word. And I pray, Father, that your word would produce just an abundant good harvest in our lives through the power of the spirit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So recently, I was listening to a podcast learning about a new cultural phenomenon that is beginning to become more increasingly popular in the science and tech world. It's called biohacking. Have you heard of this? Um, I don't know much about it. From what I gather, it's essentially a quest for humans to transcend the problems and limitations that come with being human. It's a quest for humans to become a stronger, better species and attempt to rid ourselves of the weaknesses and the fragility that's so much a part of the human experience. And like many cultural movements, uh, there's a a wide variety of things involved in this movement that have elements of both good and bad. On the one side of the scale, you've got legitimate scientific endeavors, things like editing specific genes that cause certain illnesses, Things that are valuable, kingdom work of alleviating suffering in a world that's racked by the consequences of the fall. On the other end of the scale, you've got some crazy things. Uh, they really belong more in science fiction movies than in reality. Uh, things like a serious endeavor right now to upload the human consciousness to a computer so that human beings can transcend our bodies. Or you've got people uh, that want to modify their own bodies with high-tech gadgets, uh, with computer chips that can do really useful things, like pick up uh, things with the, their fingers because there's been magnets implanted in their fingers. Or they can go to their doors and just magically open them up because there's been sensors implanted in their hands. Now, as crazy as all of this, some of it sounds, I believe there's a longing that exists within all of our hearts something we can really relate to and all the biohacking stuff that you read about. All of us, we desperately want to escape our own human frailty. And we want to put a premium uh, on our strengths and eliminate all of our weaknesses. We just want to be free, don't we, from all the things that make us feel so weak. What we're going to see today is that contrary to so much of what our modern world tells us, Weakness is not our greatest enemy as Christians. Weaknesses for the Christian can actually be an asset. It's not something that's a liability that we're constantly trying 
to rid ourselves of. And if we're willing to embrace our weaknesses by faith, we can actually experience Christ's gracious strength in new and deeper ways. Okay, so let's turn now to a passage that we read just a few minutes ago uh, in 2 Corinthians. Before we dive in, let's talk just for a minute about the context of Paul's letter to uh, Corinthians, the second one we have in our scriptures. The Apostle Paul had a very uh, complicated relationship with the church at Corinth that lasted over several years. Uh, you can describe this relationship as rocky at best. After Paul helps found the Corinthian church, something you can read about in Acts chapter 18, he writes uh, possibly as many as four letters to the church at Corinth. We have only two that have survived and have been included in our scriptures. The church at Corinth, we know if you read Corinthians, it's developed a lot of problems uh, over the years. Significant issues like these divisive factions that were arising in the church and threatening to tear the church apart. There's several cases of church members committing some very notorious public sins that needed to be addressed by the leadership of the church. Also, for us today, what we're going to see is there are many people uh, in the Corinthian church, at least some people, that were really questioning Paul's uh, apostleship. They began to think that Paul was inferior in some way because he lacked the rhetorical flash and speaking abilities that some of these other uh, preachers and speakers had during his day. To summarize all the problems in the Corinthian church, this is a church that was beginning to look a lot more like the pagan world surrounding it than God's unique called out of the world people. And many of these issues had to do with the Corinthians' distorted view of what true strength really looks like. And what do we do with our weaknesses uh, that we face in the Christian life? It's clear in your Corinthians that there are some people, some people in the church that believe that the Christian faith wasn't really compatible with suffering and weakness. That to be a Christian, a, a true Christian, a really wise Christian, was to project outward strength, a strength that's demonstrated through one's ability to debate or craft these very compelling, eloquent arguments. I think you can make a case uh, pretty good that there are several elements of the Corinthian church that actually would have been at home in some Reformed churches, maybe minus some of the most egregious sins. For the Corinthians, for the Corinthians showing your weaknesses was something, again, that you just avoided. It was something you should probably feel sh- shame over. Weakness was a sign that you were a spiritual failure. This was not something you would ever view as a plus. So what Paul's doing in 1st and 2nd Corinthians involves him telling the Corinthians where the source of true strength is found. He wants them to see that instead of hiding their weaknesses, God wants them to be honest about them. He wants to be honest about their weaknesses and their suffering and to understand that it's in the midst of our greatest weaknesses and our deepest pain that Christ's power is revealed to us the most clearly. So today I want to look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 12, and I want us to consider how we understand our own suffering and our own weaknesses, and how these things are not your greatest liability, but instead of the very place God has ordained for you to mature and experience His love and His care on a much deeper scale. Okay, let's jump into the passage that we read. Let's divide up this passage into three parts today. The first thing we're going to do is to talk about Paul's pain in verse 7. and verses 8 through 9, we're going to talk about Jesus' response. And then the last two verses, 10 and 11, we're going to talk about Paul's transformed perspective. So look now at what we read at the very beginning of our passage in verse 7. 
Our passage begins on the tail end of this paragraph where Paul's mentioned the account of this person who for 14 years uh, before 2 Corinthians was written, he's given this incredible experience of this heavenly realm. We're told about a man who's caught up into the third heaven and hears things that cannot be told. Now, most commentators believe this is Paul describing his own experiences with God. So then Paul tells us in verse 7 that in order to keep him from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to him in the flesh. Now, of course, all kinds of ink is spilled over what exactly is Paul's thorn. And of course, we don't really know. And in some ways, it doesn't really matter. What we do know about his thorn was that this was something in his life that caused him an enormous amount of pain. It was something that made him feel weak, and it was a place where Satan and evil were going to attack him. There's really nothing in our passage to indicate that this thorn was something directly caused by his own sin. This was something clearly Paul desperately wanted to be rid of. We see this when he pleads with God multiple times for it to be taken away. If this thorn was given to Paul right after this heavenly encounter, then this means that this is something he had struggled with maybe for at least 14 years by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians. So this was some kind of chronic suffering, some type of uh, long-term pain that he had to endure for a long time. And likely the pain wasn't going to go away for a long time either. We can see right off the bat that God's agenda is clearly at work in Paul being given this thorn. Verse 7 tells us that part of the reason he was given the thorn was in order to humble him, to keep him from becoming conceited and arrogant because of the surpassing greatness of the heavenly revelations that he was given. When we think about this particular instance of Paul's suffering in his thorn, we can learn something about our own suffering that's really simple, but this is really important for the Christian life. Not all of your suffering is caused by your sin. There are a variety of times in our life when our sin produces misery in your life. But it's vital to see that a significant part of our suffering as believers is not because of your personal sin. If we fail to get this right, uh, what we're going to wind up doing is crushing people who suffer because uh, we're going to blame their suffering essentially on their sin, much like Job's misguided friends. Or you're going to carry on loads of guilt uh, from your pain that God does not want you to carry. We see in our passage that Paul's thorn, this deep source of suffering, was not something God gave Paul to punish him for his sin. Rather, it was a divine gift for Paul to sanctify him so he would not fall into the sin of pride. Despite how miserable this particular experience was for Paul, God gave this particular wound to Paul for redemptive reasons, and his pain was laced with the mercy of God. People of God, we must see that so much of our suffering is like Paul's thorn in the flesh. It's a redemptive gift from the hand of God in order to accomplish His good purposes in your lives. I believe some of the most difficult suffering we face In the Christian life, it's very similar to Paul's thorn. It involves something you never asked for. Something not directly connected necessarily to our sin, but something nonetheless God has ordained for your life for important reasons. And this kind of suffering can be so overwhelmingly difficult because of all the ways that Satan and evil 
desperately want to convince you that this is your fault. They want to weigh you down with guilt and shame over a particular suffering that you haven't done anything to deserve. And so we must see that behind all of our thorns that torment us in our life stands God, God's good purposes. His gracious design for suffering to have the sanctifying and transforming effect on you. God will never waste your pain. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering for the Christian. We must always view our suffering through the lens of faith. Faith that's enabled to proclaim, just like in the story of Joseph in Genesis, that the pain that Satan and people mean for evil, God's going to mean for good. Notice also that for Paul, this place of deep suffering was a place that involved demonic activity. A place where Satan spoke to him. Notice verse 7. He says that Paul refers to this thorn also as a messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him. There's a little bit of mystery here in what Paul's saying. Where did his thorn come from exactly? Is it from God? Is it from Satan? The answer is clearly both in some way. In the Scriptures, we can see in a variety of places how God and Satan can be at work, even in the same event, but with two very different motives. And so Paul's pain was not ordained uh, only, uh, was ordained by God, it was also very much connected to this place where Satan's going to do some things. Satan has some things to say to Paul. Throughout the Scriptures, we see that Satan often loves to seek our harm the most while you suffer. There's a clear link in the Bible between our suffering and the presence of Satan and evil. It's clear that evil's agenda is always to increase your misery. You see this throughout the Gospels, and you read about the demonic activity involved in people's physical pain. In Luke chapter 13, we read about Jesus coming to a woman and healing her, this woman who has this disabling spirit for 18 years. It causes her back to be bent so badly that she's just forced to look at the ground for years and years. Jesus describes this woman as a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years. Now I want to be careful here and say plainly that not every physical ailment in your life is necessarily because of Satan's presence in your life. But what is clear, and this gets us back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 12, is that Satan so often loves to come to you and make his presence felt and his voice heard the most loudly when you suffer. Again, notice that Paul describes this thorn as a messenger of Satan who came to do him spiritual harm while he suffered. And you have to wonder, right, what's the message? What was the message you think that Satan had for Paul? that he wanted Paul to hear and to listen to. Messengers always have a message. We see something very significant in this experience of the work of Satan in, in this passage for Paul. This is true for us as well. So often Satan comes to us, evil comes to you in the midst of your pain, and it'll talk. It'll speak to you in ways to harm you further. Again, evil loves misery. It loves to make you miserable. So a huge part of growing our discernment as Christians is understanding what is evil saying to you in the midst of your pain? What's the message that it has for you that it wants you to listen to and it wants you to believe? It's evil's interpretation of your pain. 
and the demonic lies that you begin to hear and feel and believe that can begin to make your pain feel unbearable. So again, in order for us to suffer by faith, we have to grow in our discernment to see all the ways that when you suffer, evil comes at you and speaks to you, and it wants you to listen and believe what it says. So think about this, people of God. In the midst of your suffering, what's the message that evil has for you that it wants you to listen to? You ever hear Satan or evil saying these things in your own heart while you suffer? Look what you've done. This is all your fault. God does not care about you. He doesn't love you. You are utterly alone. Maybe, uh, why are you still trying to obey God? God clearly hates you. He wants to punish you for what you've done. You will never change. You will never be happy again. Or maybe there's no point in even trying. Um, things will never get better. Or maybe, maybe this one, maybe here this person will never change. So why try? You ever heard this kind of voice in your own heart? Or a voice that has another very evil message to deliver to you while you suffer? Our experience of our suffering can begin to change when we begin to see the lies that evil has told us that you've begun to believe somewhere. Lies that seek to interpret our suffering in ways that involve unbelief and shame and condemnation and despair or other things that will lead you away from God. It'll steal away your joy as a Christian. People of God, much of the experience of our Christian life will be determined by whose interpretation of our pain that you will listen to and believe. Satan's or God's. Okay, let's move on now. Let's talk about verses 8 through 9, where we see Jesus' response to Paul's pain. Verse 8, we read that whatever Paul's pain was, he hated for this and he longed for God to take it away. And we're told that he pleaded with God at least three times for God to remove the suffering. This describes well our own experiences, right? We go before the Lord again and again. We plead with Him. We pray things like, How long, O Lord? And the Lord Jesus understands Paul's experience and our experience of pain as well because this was His experience, right? During His own earthly ministry. Paul's pleading with God, uh, to take away his thorn echoes what we see Jesus himself do in the Gospels. You can think about how on the night of his arrests and his betrayal, he kneels before his father and repeatedly he prays, he pleads that the cup of suffering might pass. We can really understand Jesus' entire life as a long series of thorns that the father um, placed upon him and culminating in his own crown of thorns that he wore his death. So Paul experienced on a much smaller scale what the Lord Jesus himself experienced. He pleads with God to take it away, but God in his infinite love and mercy and wisdom, he denies the request. So how does Jesus respond to Paul's pleading for relief? Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in in weakness. Several things here about what Jesus says I want us to see. First, I don't want us to understand Jesus' response as cruel or, or lacking empathy in some way. You know, suck it up, essentially, is um, how often we deal with our pain. 
This is not what Jesus is saying here. I truly believe that Jesus weeps. We see this in the Scriptures, and there's no reason to believe that this this has stopped. That Jesus weeps over the suffering of His people. The suffering of of the world that He has made with His own two hands. This is huge because this is a huge part of the message that Satan wants you to hear and believe in your suffering. That God could stop the pain at any point, but He doesn't. So He just must not care. He's just not there and He doesn't care about you. We must never believe the terrible lie of evil that in your pain, God just only wants to look on at you in cold indifference. Second, I want us to see what Jesus says here that uh, there's clearly an agenda for Paul's pain. An agenda that we have to embrace for ourselves by faith in our own lives. The agenda was for Paul to learn to more, to learn to rely more on the grace of God than he relied on himself. Have you ever thought about this? What if the point of sanctification is not for you to suffer less, but to be able to endure suffering in ways that make us rely less and less on ourselves and more and more on God? People of God, what if God's refusing to remove the pain? Not because He hates you, but because He loves you. And He wants to heal you by stripping away our stubborn self-sufficiency, the demonic delusion that you don't really need anybody. This is essentially what Paul said at the beginning of 2 Corinthians in the very first chapter. He mentions this particular trial that he endured while he was ministering in Asia. Okay, we don't really know the details of what happened, but Paul mentioned that what he went through was so terrible, he was pretty sure he was going to die. And then he writes this in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In Jesus' response to Paul in our passage, he wants Paul to see that he had an enemy that was even greater than the suffering. And that enemy was this illusion of self-sufficiency that he could handle his own pain on his own. He didn't really need to rely on anyone other than himself. Our pain and our weaknesses, they'll always lead us to one of two places. Either we will harden ourselves towards God and other people and isolate yourself on a spiritual island where your pain only accelerates, or you cry out to God in the midst of your weakness and you learn to rely on His strength more than you've ever had to before. When Jesus tells uh, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, what's clearly implied in the statement is that Paul is not sufficient. And our pride hates this. We work so hard throughout our life to present ourselves as people who are weak, who are strong and not weak, as people who have it all together, as people who don't really struggle with things that much. Who wants to face the truth that we are incapable of handling something on our own and that we desperately just need help on a regular basis. From our earliest days, we are taught the value of self-sufficiency and we are bent from birth towards resisting the humility of relying on someone else. Parents, how many of you have seen your kids struggle to do something like tie their shoes or put on their clothes? And you want to help, but they insist. They say, Mom, Dad, no, I can do this. Please don't help me. I can do it myself. And they come out of the room and the shirt's on backwards, right? Or the shoes are on the wrong foot. And so often we we really do the same thing with God. We struggle with various things, and all the while, 
uh, in our heart at least, what we really tell God is, we just don't need you, we've got this, I don't need your help. We know what we're doing, we can handle it, we're strong Christians. So often God is like the parent who stands by his or her own child and he's patiently waiting for the child to just give up and freely admit that they're weak and that you need help. In the second half of Jesus' remarkable statement to Paul, he says this. He also says his power is made perfect in weakness. Again, something that only makes sense in the logic of God's kingdom. Of course, what Paul is not saying is that God's power is defective in some way and only becomes perfect when I suffer. Rather, he's saying that it's through our suffering that God's power is most clearly revealed for those who can see their suffering and weakness through the eyes of their faith. Jesus wants Paul um, to see that God will not answer his prayer for good reasons, that he will not take the pain away. And again, this is not because he hates Paul in some sense, but because God wants Paul to experience his power in the midst of his weakness in a way that he never could apart from it. Some of the emotional and spiritual battles we fight makes us feel so overwhelmingly weak. They reveal weaknesses that we, again, we work so hard in life to run from these things. But people of God, what if your greatest experience of weakness and suffering in your life were designed by God to be the very place where you know God's grace and strength and, again, ways you would never know apart from the suffering? What if the things that you feel the most ashamed of that you carry, your physical frailties, your fear, your anxiety, your depression, your deep frustration, your disappointment with life. What are all these things are the very things God has given us so that we would rely on His strength in different ways, in new ways? What if your greatest struggle in life actually isn't something to be ashamed of or a liability you work to hide from, but instead could be the very place where you believe that God will do His greatest work? Uh, the third thing I want to see about what Jesus is saying to Paul here um, is that there's an aspect of God strengthening us in the midst of our weaknesses that's directly connected to the context of relationships. So often God does this, not in a vacuum, doesn't do it, uh, just me and God. He does it through people. He does it through the power of Christ's love working through His body, the church. It's our connection to God's people where you will experience the deepest fulfillment of Jesus' words to Paul, that God's strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. You must see that every time we gather together here in this place, every time we gather with other brothers and sisters, Jesus is present there. And this is what He's saying to all of us. He's saying, you are weak, but you will know my strength through my body. It's one of the many reasons why participation in Jesus' body is not a spiritual bonus. It's an essential part of how God will strengthen us, and it's how His strength flows to those who are weak. Um, One final thing I want to see about Jesus' words to Paul here before we move on. I think Jesus' words should have at least two effects on us as the people of God. At least two things could be our response here when we read what Jesus says to Paul. First, Jesus' words here should strengthen those of us who are abundantly aware that we are weak. 
Some of us here today have trials that are so intense that we've begun to despair that you could actually go on, that you could keep enduring. Maybe some of us have uh, struggles here as parents where we just think, I I don't know if I can do this another week because you feel so depleted and exhausted. Some of you here in the midst of grief that feels so overwhelming, it's hard to imagine how you're going to get through the other side of it. If that's you here today, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, hang on. You don't have to despair. You don't have to give up. I want you to hear Jesus saying to you today that He wants you to trust Him. That He will be enough for you no matter how overwhelmed you feel, no matter how weak that you feel, no matter how bleak uh, life feels for you. The second effect that I think Jesus' Word should have here about the sufficiency of His grace, that it should, also, it should also humble the proud amongst us today, including myself. Some of us here are living as if you really do have everything under control in your life. Uh, and if that's you, you just haven't really suffered deeply enough yet to be broken of this illusion. If that's you, it's possible that God may actually want you to go deeper into the fellowship of Jesus' suffering And He wants this for you not because He's cruel, but because He loves you. And He really does want you to come to the end of yourself and cry out for His grace in ways you've never thought you needed and to experience God's strength in ways you never could have thought possible. Okay, let's move on and look at our last two verses that we see. The final thing we see in our passage is Paul's transformed perspective. Um... After hearing Jesus tell him that his grace will be sufficient for his struggle and that God's power is made under his weakness, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, that I am strong. What we see here is that Paul, by the help and grace of the Lord Jesus, He's able to interpret his pain a different way, right? And you see this very clearly in what he's saying. He's interpreting his pain not according to what evil says, but by faith. And this changes his experience of his suffering. Paul was writing to a Corinthian culture that in many ways was like our culture, a culture where people work so hard, again, to outwardly project strength all the time, where the pride of self-sufficiency was exalted as virtue. Their culture and our culture both encourage people's flesh to boast in yourself and what you have done and the fact that you have such a grip over your life, that you have no weaknesses, that suffering is shameful. What Paul says at the end of our passage, it turns all of this on its own head. Paul's saying that for the Christian, our suffering, our weaknesses are nothing to be ashamed of. They're actually the opposite of what our culture says. They're not problems to be solved. They're not things you work hard to hide, but instead they're the very places where you're going to feel God's power. You're going to feel God's strength. And so instead of working hard to hide our struggles and weaknesses from others, Paul says now he gladly boasts in them. And that is an incredible statement, right? That is crazy to most people, and only in the wisdom of God's kingdom does that make any sense that God doesn't want you to hide your weaknesses from others and buy into this demonic lie that you should know how to deal with your problems by yourself. God, through Paul's words, wants wants us to see that you can actually 
to be honest and proclaim your weaknesses to people because we're so sure that by doing this we face our weaknesses and we rely on God and uh, know His strength in a new way. And it's how we grow up. It's how we mature. We don't grow as Christians when we hide weakness. So here's just a great, really simple question. Do you think you actually do this in your life? Do you believe what Paul is saying? I want you to ask yourself this morning, can you actually talk about your weaknesses with people in your life? Or do you think you have to work hard to downplay them or hide them in some way? Husbands and wives, in your marriages, can you do this? Can you talk to each other about why you're weak and why you need God's help on a regular basis? Parents, do you have the humility to let your children see where you are weak so that they better understand that your strength is not coming from yourself? It's coming only from God Himself. Notice also in verse 10, Paul says that, um, because I don't say that for Christ's sake, he even finds contentment in the midst of all the pain and all the weakness that he feels. Again, that's a truly remarkable statement about how through faith, our experience of suffering is transformed. Paul gives us this overwhelming list of various trials and places of his suffering in verse 10. He mentions suffering he's received from the hands of other people. Insults, persecutions, and he also mentions weaknesses and hardships, calamities, all suffering that could be included in a variety of painful things, from things that happen in the natural world to sickness and other things that happen in our bodies. And so Paul is basically saying that only through this transformed perspective given through faith, he's able to endure all the various things that have brought him so much pain. And he was not only able to endure, but he could even find contentment while he suffered because he began to understand more and more and trust by faith that God is doing something in my suffering, in my pain, that it is not for, any, for, not for uh, waste. People of God, if we're honest with ourselves and people about how hard life is, We'll do what we see Paul says in our passage. We will regularly cry out to God for Him to take away pain, to take out the thorns that we have been given that just don't seem to go away no matter what we do. And like Paul, many of us will experience, all of us in some way will experience God's refusal to take the pain away. And to be able to endure, we, like Paul, must learn how to interpret our pain by faith and to reject all the lies of evil that come to you in the midst of your suffering. We must trust the truth of the Scriptures that for the child of God, there is always a holy meaning behind your misery. And like Paul, this is what will transform the experience of our pain and suffering. When you long for relief and you just seem to not be able to find any, if we can listen to God and let in what His Word is saying here, we can begin to see your pain through a very different lens. You can begin to experience contentment even when the pain doesn't go away, like Paul mentions in verse 10. We can begin to see our trials and struggles as the place where God will do His deepest and most profound work in our lives. And as much as we hate the furnace of affliction, that we all must go through as much as how, as much as uh, we hate how weak this makes us feel. By faith, we can begin to see that this is the place 
where you will discover a strength that does not reside in yourself. This is the place where you will discover the infinite strength of the loving kindness of the living God. Let's pray together today. Father, we do praise You for Your Word that's true and good and that You really are uh, sufficient for us in the midst of our pain and our weaknesses. Father, we desperately need the help of Your Spirit to live like it's true because it is. And I pray, Father, that You would uh, strengthen us. I pray that You would use all of us here today to strengthen one another. And I pray for many of our service that through feasting with You, Father, you would tell us once more that your grace is sufficient for us and that your power is made perfect in our weaknesses. Would you be pleased to do all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.